0: take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison.
1: Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver
2: Women's Correctional Facility.
0: I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility.
1: I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative.
0: Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Within the vault, our team is serving
1: Life without parole plus 42 years
2: Life without plus 32 years 48 years.
1: 72 years. 48 years.
2: 98 years.
1: Life without parole plus 55 years.
2: 42 years. Having so many members of our team serving long or life sentences, that's why we needed to cover the heaviness of this subject.
1: Creating these next two episodes about dying in prison were the hardest part of our season 1 of Within.
0: Because I don't I don't believe that many people know or even recognize that people die in prison. And they die alone, alone. right? They die alone, no family, no one there. And the majority of them who die don't have life sentences. They're here for a short period of time. And they may be thinking they're getting out, but they die.
1: We wanted to start off this episode, Groundskeeper, by talking with Damon Davis, a resident at DRDC who is serving a life sentence plus 480 years and likely will spend the rest of his life in prison. But he's also an offender care assistant, an OCA at DRDC, where he walks people through dying in prison constantly.
0: Damon Davis is from St. Louis, Missouri. He is 43 years old and has been inside for 20 years. He's published a nonfiction book called Voices in the Cellar, He loves to write, and is a motivational speaker to other incarcerated men. What's up?
3: Welcome. What's happening?
1: (laughs) Welcome, Mr. Davis. Good to be here. Thank you for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me. strange.
1: So you have been working as an OCA, um, which is... The term is offender care care aid. aid. Yes, for fourteen years, is that right? Um,
3: yes, we could say that. Um, when it first started, the program was at territorial. It's called ADL Clinical Assistant Nurses Vocation Program. Okay, that was in two thousand five, and it was just a four month program versus the couple of hours that the OCA training gives you. But at that time, it's ADL stands for Activities of Daily Living. That's how it would be addressed on the street. DOC came up with OCA Offender Program in 2010, maybe because they don't want to pay you. A, yeah, that's what <laughs> they, I was going to ask. They, is they don't want to pay. You know what I mean? If it's a if it's a vocation, then it could be an industry. If an in industry, then they would be required to compensate you a lot better for the work that you do on that scale.
1: And what are you? Can you define? I mean, um, I'm imagining people who are listening have never heard of anything, any of this. So if you were to explain this from like the bare bones, what is this?
3: Oh, it would it would be if in the hospital. I would be a CNA, mm-hmm. a certified nurses assistant, mm-hmm. in a hospital. What are some of your activities uh, you that what, you do? Job duties up there. Yeah, um, they they progressed over the years, but right now the last five years has been the most intense activities. Um, dealing with we we help. We work in the. Inf- I work in the infirmary. It's probably a- and is it the only infirmary in the state? It's one of two in the state. Okay. The other one is uh, I think in Canyon City, territorial. Um, it's one of two in the state. And right now we help people from all uh, various types of cancer, um, illnesses, cancer, uh, hospice patients. You know, hospice care stuff like that, um, injuries uh, from people that's. Paraplegics that you know, what I mean, that's kind of what we do. We help them with their daily activities, helping them shower, uh, do a lot of bedpan changing, changing in the bed and stuff like that. Why did you choose an OCA? Well, at the time that I did it, it I felt like it was a, it was a, it was a a tool to be added to my to utility belt. I guess <laughs> not utility belt, but it would add value to who I am at the time that I did it, you know what I mean? To, like, give you something tangible that said who you, who I am as a person, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm a compassionate person. I'm a human being, and I want to extend that. I'm not who the judge, the DA, the public view me as, sentence me as. I'm not that person. I'm going to do what I've, I've done. I would do on the street, you know what I mean? Like, I would care for somebody on the street if that's the situation. So at that time, I've always sought, like, Since I came into incarceration, I've always sought, like, higher education, higher learning. So, at the time, the ADL clinical assistant thing was the that, you know, besides, like, industry stuff. So, the intention
1: was when you signed up to go through the training Mm -hmm. 14 years ago, Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say is that it was around finding value in a different way. Right. Is that... as nail on the head,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And can you, I mean... Walk us through that thought process. Um so this is 14 years ago, six years into your your time. Mm-hmm. Um you don't you don't have to be doing this. It's a no. choice. So walk us through what that thought process was. I want people to understand that.
3: Well, very rawly, I guess honestly, my thought process was um they labeled me a monster, cold hearted, villain, uncaring human being. Um, and at the time, um, that's what moved me. I, I was a barber at first, and I quit that to go do the OCA thing. And uh, I, I, just on a mission to not not die with that as my label, mm-hmm. and I wanted to live with who I am, regardless if they noticed it or not. You know what I mean? Regardless if if they really cared about if if they saw me or not you know what i mean mm. I, I i wanted to be true to who i who, who i was mm. and so that's why i did it. you know what i mean like i want to care for people and do that you know what i mean like help improve the quality of their life at that time
1: that's really powerful
2: because i
3: was healthy you know
2: who's, I mean? who's they in your book because i my version of they is different i'm sure okay who's they to you
3: um they uh the public view the public opinion of people that rob and end up you know, in prison for robbery, murders, what they would seem violent crimes, the judge, the D.A., everybody that lives with those biases and stigmatisms in their hearts and minds without truly knowing the details of how these things occur. So that would be they to me, those people that uh, condemn us, judge us in that fashion without knowing. It was nothing to prove to myself because I knew who I was. You know what I mean? It was something to keep the light on inside of me mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. That was more important to say not be condemned by their stigmas because their stigmas can swallow you up. Their stigmas can, um, if you decide to say, okay, what's what's keeping me from saying, okay, I'll be everything that they think I am because they condemn me anyway. You know what I mean? They said my life isn't worth redemption. It isn't worth looking into anyway. So, What kept me from doing that? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even right now to to this day as we speak, I'm like, I was going to ask the state to just execute me anyway. Like last week I was plotting on places to write to say, well, execute me because at this point, no one cares about the steps, the effort, the energy, the life that you're putting in to the world you know i mean no one cares about your efforts behind these walls in incarceration no one cares about any of these things so and because if they did they would stop talking about it and come look into these situations how does a person go from a Olympic prospect to life plus 480 years in jail so and no one even batted an eye of like that's kind of uh you know extra. That's that's a little much, like what's going on here. He's not a serial killer. He, that's more time than Jeffrey Dahmer. That's more time than Helter Skelter, Charles Manson. That's more, that's more time than any other people you can name except for most recently getting convicted and sentenced, but any other people you can name in, in the past 20 years or 30 years of, of serial killers. So why does this person have this much time? So I felt that they condemned me and i'm not i just i didn't I wanted to combat those emotions that came with that. I wanted to combat the disparity, the sadness the anger um the hopelessness that came with that and the only way to do that is to move forward and to do things that help other people to do things that show who you truly are in the inside so that's the only way that you can combat what they think even if they don't see it so to create some kind of legacy of that so if the people in the penitentiary are the only ones that see you then if I die in 20 or 30 years they won't say oh he was this heartless uh ball of uh negative energy this he created chaos everywhere he went type of thing and so yeah you know your story would still go down in history as you never existed so um staff I don't know volunteer workers the people Next to us, the, the, the our peers, my peers are the only ones that truly know who you are mm. besides your family. So you have to put everything that you are into your every day, your every movement, um, just everything that you are, you know, without worrying about what other people think. Um, you know what I mean? Because if the world was to end today and your kids choose to not talk to you, to not visit you or you know, the caretaker or their parent, you know, doesn't interact with you to get close or anything. And if you don't take it upon yourself to write about it, like um you know William Graham um or myself or other authors that write their stories, you die without ever having a tombstone. And even if that tombstone was there, if it all it says was monster, villain, wicked person, why were you ever born in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If that's all it says, so there's there's always more to the story. There's always more details than um, when crime occurs, when tragedy strikes, when uh, things that we don't necessarily understand at the moment, and they they cause everyone great pain. The victims involved, and it's just a collateral effect. But it's more involved, and ultimately, what's involved is the common denominator. No matter if you're a victim or a perpetrator, is the human. Mm-hmm the humanism involved, and so those, that has to be, that has to weigh more than just retribution.
0: You know, being in prison for 20 years and seeing people come and go, of course you come across people that you've seen in the past, right? Um, How does it make you feel about seeing the guys that you positively affected?
3: Well, I don't always see them. Doing a lot of motivational speaking and stuff like mentoring, I would say, uh, during DRDC, we don't always see it come back. So just recently with um, Terry Mosley, he came, and it was like a couple days ago, uh, unbeknownst to... Him or this panel at this time, um, I was I was in a state of, a state of mind of like maybe despondency at this point. You wouldn't be able to tell from the outside looking in, because every day I got up. So when I talked to Terry the other day, and he was like, "Man, it was something you said. I bet you don't remember the year or this and that." And I knew it was in the '90s something, but I didn't remember exactly. But I remembered him. He didn't think I remembered him, and 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 uh, he said that I uh, I don't know exactly what I said to terry but he said something to the effect of uh i would have to be reminded because it was just in the everyday thing i i saw that he was a young man at the time
0: um did you tell him something like his life's not over
3: it was something along the facts of i know that gave him a lot of time maybe a life sentence at the time and i just saw something on him something resonated with his spirit and i just wanted to tell him that it's not over you know i mean still fight don't believe a lot of what they're saying, you know, don't let that seep into your spirit, push on at this time. And I think um I was coming from a Centennial facility at that time I was incarcerated maybe a year if that. And uh so going in between that or whatever time it was um spoke to him. So when he that's how the energy came back to me um later. And that's that really brought my day up and said, wow, you really impacted somebody it was more than that it said that okay somebody hears you somebody sees you like in the in the light of just to go toward that that you're not that you know i'm sorry just to go toward that the fact that you're not you don't have to become who you th-
2: they who, think who, you are
3: yeah who, you, and
1: how serendipitous I'm sorry. i mean that we are now um I just want to point out to you. I I, I I agree with you. I do not think it's random that you've been in a state recently of feeling despondent, and that we happen to show up this week right. with Terry Mosley right. to remind you of that. But also now that you are literally recording something that will be heard by we don't know how many people yet.
3: These conversations, like. I was just so tired of people always talking about prison reform, prison reform, or, oh, have, we have this bleeding heart, heart for people that's incarcerated, and, you know, mistreated, or whatever the situation is. Not claiming a victim stance, but just saying, like, where is it? Like, where is the light for the people that saying? I think, well, basically, I think it's dangerous if you leave us. Those that, I say dangerous because those that are making efforts, whether the lights are on or off, I think it's dangerous to allow keep allowing them to try to push forward unaided. This program, this platform, aids us because the further you allow these per- people to go, and they're going on their own volition. No one told William S. Graham to write as many books as he's written. You know, no one to publish as many books as he's published. No one told me to uh, change or to you know walk in this light. I did it of my own volition. And when we're walking in, in these tunnels and in this darkness and we're steady pushing through with the light that only we hold inside of our hearts and mm. our minds, it's dangerous to leave us unaided. Because eventually, if you put, if something is growing in a, out of a toxic environment and it's bearing fruit and then somebody just looks at it like it's nothing, like that's not a miracle, that's not mm-hmm. something to be acknowledged, or they just It'll eventually, somebody will just cut it off, yeah. mm-hmm. or and it'll, it'll be like it's never, never was there. So I think that's dangerous because so for us that means, say you soak in this environment, either, either that plant life, whatever that's there, it's going to soak up nutrients from that environment so it can grow fruit, or that environment is going to consume it and intoxicate it and kill it.
2: So you're an OCA now you're in the infirmary at DRDC. Have you ever met somebody that, that touched your life that you remember that has either, um, that has passed or
3: that has passed away Yeah, up, up in the infirmary? Yeah. Oh, shucks. I've been, I've been up there for about five years. I don't know how many people have passed away. A lot, a lot that I've known, like personally known have passed away. Um, Kenneth bright just passed away about a month and a half ago somewhere around there and uh i've i've you know i've i've that's the first time I shed a tear for a person that passed away um not in the sense that I was calloused but is i was so emotionally immensely i i i had to detach myself so many times so many times for uh, the individuals that passed away up there. Because I have to continue to do the job, and I have to continue to push forward and give them the best that I can give them while I'm there for my eight hours. Um, Kenneth Bright, uh, he, he reminded me of a, a warrior, and uh, he reminded me, you know, never have I known a warrior a warrior on any battlefield to emerge honorable yet stainless. So, in this, like Kenneth was an older man, and he he had cancer and they denied him medical parole. They denied him medical parole and uh so he would see his last days amongst us in incarceration. Um so when he passed, he was always fighting though. He was always moved like he, he refused to lay down. And when he was like, man, he would even get delirious and just start getting busy. You know what I mean? And this was like in a like I, stay
2: in your bed. Right, right.
3: So and then, you know, we didn't want to contain him because it's you know, it's still life. He's still fighting. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, they allowed his sister for the first time to stay, anybody for the first time to stay overnight with that person. Wow,
2: wow. The that's whole progressive. Yes, mm-hmm. you know what
3: I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the whole time that he was there, he 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 always on his worst days, he was still he would buy candy and cakes. And I just had to make people smile, man. he give people stuff. And just, he remind me of how I felt this whole time in incarceration. Despite your circumstances or your condition, you still push forward and give your light. You still give that out. You push it no matter what. and you, And that gives you peace.
1: I'm just imagining someone passing away for whatever reason um, in prison who doesn't necessarily have a lot of family or any family coming to visit and that the last people they're interacting with are these OCAs. Right. Um, What are those interactions like? I mean, this person's leaving the world and they're leaving the world inside. Right. And yet this is a job that you have, like you said, that you... You know, you have to show up again the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious. What?
3: Well, um, those interactions are are all all different in, with each one mm-hmm. because uh, they they do die in a dark room, and nine point five out of times you're not with family. Meaning, the Kenley Bryce situation was unique in itself. The other times you're with us, the OCA's, um, where the last hand felt the last piece of warmth or familiarity to that person, Um, they're strangers at that point, depending, you know, even if we've been taking care of them for a while, I'm still a stranger compared to their family member Mm -hmm. or the journey of, you know, the details of the journey of their life, I'm still a, um, a stranger. So in my mind, spiritually uh, I will just say physically spiritually when I'm there I just I try to embody a person that loved them their whole life or cared about them their whole life I try to embody it for that moment even if it's awkward if God just wants to hold your hand and you like man you know he ain't <laughs> had a bath in the week or you know or something like that but it isn't like you know we bathe them and stuff but you just you just hold a hand and, and they might say pray with them and I'm like man I'm not really religious but I'll I'll, I'll pray or thank you um, it's just, it's just it's real um, it's a trip and it's a little heavier for me and because of the sins I have I often look at the beds in there and the rooms I often look at them like well maybe one day. I mean, it's a possibility one day that I would be in these beds. I don't know what's going on in my body at this point that may yield cancer or may yield a um, a spontaneous passing or death. You know what I mean? So uh, I try to give them the most comfort that they could ever feel mentally or spiritually, even if if they've given up because a lot of people give up, you know, before their time and it causes their health to go down faster than it would if their attitude was different but i have to meet them where they are at that point and say okay man all right i get it you're ready you're prepared um this is your choice so you know what i mean type of thing but it's very hard i would have to describe it as like a person having a life sentence and then seeing people pass away seeing uh being almost like a pallbearer to those people or the Reaper, I would say, not the Reaper taking their souls away, but help guiding them to their next journey is like get them up every day. Like say you're in a cemetery, but your grave is not covered up. Right. So you get, you get the luxury of coming out, coming out of your grave and Taking care of all the nature around the cemetery You know, some people have passed away Some people are still there So the nature is like the grass, the birds The trees, you you take care of that The flowers and all of that You take care of that And so You want to, you know, keep that good energy You want to keep it nice for when it's your time So the infirmary for me represents the, My cell represents my grave And I get out And the infirmary represents the graveyard to where i'm the caretaker and you just try to make it as pleasant even though it's a cemetery as pleasant as it can be you know what i mean for those people so that's how you that's how i deal with it and and i say my time i, I want to be at peace with who i am and so i want to be able to say with the life i'm still breathing and giving i can give and, you know, he has me, I'm able to move, I'm able to walk, I'm strong, I'm healthy. So use it to help those that are less, that can't.
1: In your dream world, mm. you vast. could, yes, you could re- reimagine dying in prison. The experience of what would happen for people? Uh,
3: allow their families to, to come. Allow allow them. Are they not allowed? Well where where it's it's allowed under the, under certain circumstances like if you have to if this is where you had to pass away, you had to spend your last days, then there should be a designated room like they have for parents and the the trailers over here for the ladies for the kids um i I just think it should be even offer up um even offer up the opportunity if a victim wanted to come mm. and rectify with them and recon, 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 reconcile with them, you know, even if they wanted to you know to come to do that. Give them all the opportunities to allow them to be at peace, to have the most peaceful transition into this next stage of existence, and whatever that may be.
1: What's the most interesting or sort of surprising or meaningful thing? That someone has asked for when they were dying inside,
3: to you. They wanted me, not a pastor, not a religious person per se, chaplain, chaplain, not a cha- chaplain or anything like that. They wanted they wanted me to forgive them for forgiveness, and they hadn't harmed me or oh, wow. whatever it was. Uh, it was a person that several people, but one in particular was in the SMNU the SMNU and the infirmary is the special medical needs unit. And it's about eleven people back there. Um, one was down from COP. And for whatever reason, he was like, You forgive me, you forgive me, uh older guy. Mm. Also an author too. He was an author as well.
1: And what did you say?
3: Hey Amen. I forgive you. You know, I, I had to I had to I had to answer the call. I, I don't know what for. And See, when people are passing away, one of the strangest things, and it's, and it's consistent through all of them, especially when they're going out on on morphine and stuff like that, they often see things that we, you and I, do not see. Mm-hmm. And they often talk about, it, they verbalize spirits and mm-hmm. things coming through walls and stuff. So you never know who was standing next to me in the room, what spirit was there, or what spirit he saw on me, or what power he may have felt I had. In his life at that time, to ask him for that, what what did he see in my heart? What did he see in my actions leading up to that? I've you know put, I've been there a while and was his caretaker for a little bit. So you never know. And, and so, full wholeheartedly, all you can say is, "Man, I forgive you," and with all your heart and soul.
1: After Damon left the vault, our resident poet, William S. Graham, who's also a friend and colleague of Damon's, encouraged him to come back and read one of his poems on the air. We normally end our episodes with a poem from Will, but this week, we're going to conclude with a piece written and read by Damon Davis. And then we also invited you back to read a poem. Can you tell us the oh, <laughs> yeah, name? Blame it well, on blame
3: it on Will. Well, you know, the creative director, I had some um I had something in mind, uh, it was uh, another poem initially from uh my second book, and he preferred he recommended that I read uh Body Bag sorta. It's called Body Bag Slash Flatline. Um so like to get the Before I read it, I would like you all to, um, if you can, close your eyes to imagine that you're inside your body, paralyzed. You can't speak. You can't move. But you can hear faint sounds around you, and you can sort of feel, but not in a pain sort of way, like a numb feeling. And your body's placed in this bag, zipped up from the outside. So... I was asked to, in my mind, to uh, explain this one day, so this experience, this uh, whole journey. All I remember is that it was dark, not exactly still, a little swirly, yet I could feel the faint beat of my heart, but unusually cold, not warm and deep, like it had been from the start, so I thought or so I thought I was thinking, though it was sort of hard to concentrate over this distinguished sound of unfamiliar beeping. Beep. Not quite awoke, but not exactly sleeping. Maybe somewhere in between, if you don't mind me speaking. Oh, I know. I was dreaming. Yeah, that's it. Because despite the beeping, I could hear the clashing, clinging of what sounded like operational tools undergoing a scrutinized screening. Nah, I doubt it was cleaning, as I immediately felt a surge of panicky feelings. Was I shot? In a car accident? Was I dying? Or was I bleeding? Oh, shit, I'm on life support. I can't feel myself breathing. And my, my hands, legs, arms, and feet have no feeling. How could this be? Weren't they near? My loved ones, my family... No, this must be a mistake. They would never leave me. It's this darkness. Yeah, it's this darkness. It must be getting to me. But, hmm, shockingly, it was true. Yet it wasn't from ICU, life support, or surgery. I was alone, cold, and barely breathing from doing a life sentence in the penitentiary. So when I called home to find out why it was that they weren't, weren't here with me, my loved ones, my friends, my family. The response was, it was you, not us, who didn't take your life seriously. And it was your fault that you were speeding and crash landing in the penitentiary and be flatline cardiac arrest is where it sent me. Where the hell am I? Like everyone else, you've made mistakes you've lived an imperfect life. How's that? I was only 23 when you decided what the rest of my life would be. Yes, I see. You wanted mercy. Like you should be treated as a child who stole candy at age three. Well, not exactly. But don't you see? If there is still breath in my lungs, wouldn't you do all that you possibly could to save me? Especially if my heart was good, I made the changes and I asked for forgiveness. Hey, I'm not the one for comparisons, but uh, didn't God forgive Moses, who struck a man down? Now, I can't imagine that that was the best of all his decisions. Yet, he was chosen to lead the people out of perdition into the land of their redemption. The greater the mistake, the greater the lesson, the greater the shared wisdom. But you, I will torture you as long as you are still living. Wow, is there no mercy or forgiveness for the ones who are still giving? Wait, what did did Jesus say to the shepherd of the the 99 sheep, but the one was still missing? No, no, wait, wait. Uh... Sirens blare in the distance. Paramedics, Bill and Phil, arrive on the scene as routine as a a would-be traffic stop for cops. A figure lies limp, face down behind the warehouse, pronounced dead on arrival. Without a break in conversation, Bill and Phil never looked down as if their limbs were operating on cruise control. They placed a figure in the dark, in the black bag. Zip. Doosh, doosh. The ambulance door shut. Start the paperwork. Mm, so who do we have here? Mm, I don't know. Some perp, some jerk. Flirting, s- supposedly flirting with some, with the wrong guy's girl. Yeah, karma's a bitch. I wouldn't mess with her. Eh, yeah, you really never can tell in this world. Come on, Bill. Let's get this guy loaded on the gurney and down to the morgue. What the hell? Did you hear that, Phil? Hear what? That sound. Hey, stop the van. Open the bag. They said this guy was dead. Man, man, just grab the IV. Maybe this guy has a family. Does it really matter? Well, only if he's a part of your family. <laughs> Real funny. No one told this guy to rob those people and try to take all their money. I assure you, he's not. My family humanity would never honor such an unethical being. Just just get the IV. Hey, hey, man, the zipper's stuck. What? I can't get the bag open. It's as if something's holding it from the inside. Well, man, cut it open. This guy's still alive. I'm trying, I'm trying. A bright flash of light. I can hear a person speaking as if their voice is muffled by dirt or tape or someone else's hand. I can't breathe, steady, steady, wake up. The zipper gave way to the bag and it was me, alive, barely breathing, a faint light wandering around the cemetery speaking. Loss and grief, a thief unbeaten, A virus sent to weaken the heart of the strengthened, a pot so sweetened. It's likened to misery and vulnerability. Just ask the people closest to me. Better yet, those who are estranged from me. No worries, I'll pay my bounty. The reaper gets all that's owed to him eventually. Pain everlasting while you're living, and hellfire possibly when you leave. It's all a part of the plan if you ask me. But don't ask me, because I don't believe in half of what I see. And it's even a far cry if I've ever heard anything correctly. So I fall to my knees and ask God to forgive me. Bless all those who've been hurt or deceived by me. The rest is a blur, so I just keep on living. As I attempt to convert my arrogance into giving, without without losing confidence in who I am and the life I'm giving. The warrior must cut ties with anything that weakens the fighting spirit. But what's the use in all this fighting if at every turn they want me to lay down my weaponry? Me? In each environment, I operate differently. Strangely enough, they don't want me to relinquish what I believe. They could care less about my rusty armor. Robert Fisher. Yes, it's, it's best that I remain a fisher of men, divide the bounty, then specialize in abscounding, not likely karma, dharma, malfunctioning, grieving the loss most definitely if I were to let external extremities internally affect me, respect me. Loss and Grief. The nature of the beast, lay it at his feet, keep stepping, put your faith in the, in the power of a higher entity, holy divinity. Dear Lord, forgive me.
0: Next time on Within.
2: Nick Jones, resident at the infirmary in DRDC.
0: He was a 30-year-old man that picked me up
2: hiking. He was trying to do the nicest thing he could do, and I did the worst thing I could do. And that's part of the reason I have a problem with not being able to make up for that. Because we were at the extremes of that. He was doing the best he could do, and I was doing the worst I could do.
1: We wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado. So we started a newsletter. It's called Reverberations from Within. If you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it, visit our website at thisiswithin.com. If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your
0: facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DU Pi founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard.
2: Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com. Hey, let's go! you. Yeah.